Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our second reading for today contains one of the most precious texts in the whole Bible. It's taken from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. You know, the Philippians were a community that Paul especially loved. That comes through clearly in the letter. It's also interesting because Philippi was the first European city that Paul evangelized. He had worked, of course, in, mostly in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Well, he crosses over into Greece, present-day Greece, and he evangelizes Philippi. What an important moment that was in the history of the West. That was the moment Christianity first came to Europe. Well, as he often does in this passage, Paul is urging unity. How important that was for him in letter after letter. Listen to him now. He says to them, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, with the same love, united in heart, thinking one thing. How often can he say it? Four different ways to say, would you be united? It just bugged Paul when he saw his communities falling into rivalry, dissension, division. It reminds me of, I know a line I've quoted often to you, Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher, said, the saint is someone whose life is about one thing. Well, Paul wants this community to be about one thing, to have the same mind in you. Origen, the great church father, said, ubi divisio ibi peccatum. Where there's division, there's sin, period. That's a good principle. I tell the students here at the seminary, when you go into your parish or you're working in your diocese, ubi divisio, ibi peccatum. Wherever you see division, there's always sin in some form. Well, what precisely is this unity that Paul wants in the community at Philippi? It is unity in the mind and attitude of Christ. Here's what he says. Have the same attitude in you that is also in Christ Jesus. Now at this point, Paul adapts, the scholars think, a hymn that was already being used in Christian communities. And since this letter dates from, oh, maybe the mid-50s of the first century, this hymn might qualify as one of the very oldest expressions of the Christian faith that we have. It might go back to the 40s, who knows, even the 30s of the first century. Now, Paul brings into his letter at this point to express the kind of unity he's talking about. Here's how it begins. Jesus, though he was in the form of God. How important that line is. Here's the first point to note. From the most primitive stratum of the Christian tradition comes this affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. The claim 
popularized in bad books like the Da Vinci Code, that Christ's divinity was a fabrication of the later church is given definitively the lie here. Jesus was, as Paul says, in the morphe tuteu, in the form of God, and thus infinitely more than a mere human teacher or sage. Don't believe those lies that the divinity of Jesus was a later invention of the church. No, no, right here from the earliest stratum of the tradition, you see it affirmed. Then Paul goes on. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped at. Ah, so much hinges on that affirmation. There's a wonderful play that we might miss, but no first century Jew would have missed it. Because there is another biblical figure who is described as being in the image of God. And that's Adam, of course. Now, he's not divine, but he's in the image and likeness of God. But here's the point. He does deem equality with God a thing to be grasped at. That's precisely what the original sin is. Adam, who's in God's image and likeness, wants to seize divinity. That's the entire burden of the story of the fall. The one who is not God tries to be God, and everything comes apart. You know, if you want a one-line summary of the Bible, that's it. That's it. When we who are not God try to be God, place our own wills, our own minds at the center of things. And listen, fellow sinners, we all, to one degree or another, do precisely that. That's what it means to be a sinner, is you think you are God. But see, when that happens, it's like a machine whose parts are at odds with themselves. Think of a a car or or a computer, some complex machine. And if it's thrown off kilter, the, the parts are at odds with themselves, the whole thing will become dysfunctional. It's like a balance thrown off kilter. We become interiorly dysfunctional and we become dysfunctional on the outside as well, our relationships and so on. That's the story of the Bible, what sin does to us. Now, what's the solution to this problem? And this gets right to the heart of St. Paul's teaching. Paul intuited this. The solution to the problem is that the one who actually is God, Jesus in the morphe tuteu, in the form of God, empties himself, doesn't cling to divinity, but rather lets it go. Listen, the bad momentum of sin had to be stopped and then reversed by a new and positive momentum. See, think of, think of the sin of the world as this great avalanche, this, this great flood, rush of flood water. It's things moving in the wrong direction, moving destructively. Well, how do you stop them? There's got to be a, an answering force that can stop the movement and then even reverse it. That's what Paul sensed had happened in Christ Self-aggrandizement on the part of man had to be met 
by self-emptying on the part of God. Let me say that again. Self-aggrandizement on the part of man. That's, that's the story of sin. That's Adam grasping at godliness. Had to be met by self-emptying on the part of God. That's the only way that the great avalanche of sin could be stopped and reversed. The only way that the floodwaters could be turned back. Listen again now to the hymn that Paul cites. Rather, he, Christ, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness. What does it mean to be God? Well, it means power, dominance, self-possession. Not really, unless we totally redefine those terms. See, what Paul is saying is this. What it means to be God is to let go, to let be, to be for the other. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't deem equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. We properly call God all-powerful, perfect, self-sufficient, but those words have nothing to do with the worldly or earthly sense. They have nothing to do with our fantasies of self-sufficiency and domination. God's power is precisely his capacity to give himself away. Let that sink into your hearts, Christians. God's power is precisely in his capacity to give himself away. The Greek term used here by Paul is kenosis, self-emptying. It's become a technical term in theology to designate this othering quality of God. God is kenotic, self-emptying. How far did the emptying go? Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death came into the world through our desire to be like God. Death was conquered by God's willingness in love to die. Again, that, that balance, that reversal. I spoke a few weeks ago on the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross about the sheer terror of the cross for ancient people. God's self-emptying love went all the way down to that most frightening, most terrible place. That's Paul's point when he says, death, yes, even death on a cross, it's meant to be the limit case of evil and suffering and terror. But that's where God goes in his self-emptying. So, here's the paradox implied in this hymn. If you want to be like God, okay, but realize this means becoming conformed to self-forgetting love. If you want to be like God, fine, but realize it means becoming powerless. Yes, even to the point of death. Do you see now how strange we Christians are? We hold up the image of a crucified criminal and we say, that's what God looks like. Do you want equality with God? Okay, if that's what you're grasping at. 
See, Adam's mistake was thinking, well, godliness means power, domination, self-centeredness, self-sufficiency. No, no. True godliness looks like that criminal nailed to a cross, emptied out in love. And so, briefly, I'll turn to the gospel. As he often does, Jesus presents a stark option, a choice. The kingdom of God's at hand, and what are you going to do about it? The choice, to put it in terms of the second reading, is between the old Adam and the new. Will you walk the self-destructive path of grasping at divinity, puffing up the ego, filling the emptiness of your life with wealth and pleasure, power, honor? Well, that's the path of the old Adam. We've seen where that leads. That's the dysfunction of the world coming from that. Or will you follow the path of the new Adam? Becoming divine by becoming conformed unto love. Notice, please, it's very clear in the gospel, Jesus doesn't care much at all for lip service, for words, for religious titles and traditions. He makes fun of the scribes and Pharisees by means of this parable. The father says to his sons, well, well, help me in the field here. And and the first says, oh, father, I'll go, I'll do it, but then doesn't. The second one, no, I won't do it, but then regrets his decision and he goes out and, and helps. Well, who's doing the will of his father? The one that actually does something. Don't rely on words and titles, externals, but rather decide right now, today, those listening to me right now, decide. The new Adam or the old? You're going to walk that path of self-aggrandizement, self-divinization, or do you walk the path of self-emptying love? That's the only question that finally matters. And Jesus puts it before us today. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you.